0: Everyone and welcome to our professional perspectives podcast on Humanity Rising. I am your host, Alicia Gupta, and today I have with me Steve Killale AM. What Cause Inspires You is a podcast founded for students ages 13 to 21 to be able to share the service they are doing in their communities. We recently launched our professional perspective series in order for experts in their field to give insight to our youth about how to make a stronger impact and accelerate social justice movements. As a global philanthropist, Steve has laid the foundations to develop an entirely new understanding of peace. As a thought leader, he has reshaped the entire concept to recognize its integrity to the revival of our economic and political systems. Few provoked global amongst both policymakers and members of the public quite to the extent of Steve. As an international entrepreneur behind a global think tank, the Institute for Economics and Peace, He combines a highly successful career in technology with a philanthropic focus on peace and sustainable development to shed new light on issues from terrorism and conflict to economics and prosperity. The Institute for Economics and Peace IEP Ambassador Program provides peace builders from around the world with concrete knowledge and resources to help foster peace within their networks and communities. The program is a means through which IEP's research is activated. Consisting of three webinars with research and figures from IEP, participants are required to utilize their learning from the program in a piece project or presentation. And we're super excited to announce that we are bringing this program to Humanity Rising and all of our students in the movement. The podcast series will be available on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Music under Human Rising Voices. Be sure to stay updated with new podcast releases at humanity.rising and at what inspires you on Instagram and at humanity rising on LinkedIn and Facebook. If you are a student listening in today, be sure to sign up on interview to receive community service hours for participating at our live podcasts and receive updates on our scholarship challenges. All right, Steve, it's great being able to speak with you today. Are you ready to begin?
1: Sure, ready whenever you are.
0: Perfect. So in the theme of what cause inspires you in Humanity Rising, what cause inspires you? What is your passion? What drives you?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting. I quite often get that question, Alicia, but uh, I don't really know. I, I tend to just do what I feel like doing. I get concepts or ideas and they're not just really Uh, Act on them. Uh, If I look at the businesses I've set up, I've set up two international uh, IT companies, uh, which end up publicly listed, because I just got the idea to develop a computer program and just followed the passion to do that. If I look at the Institute for Economics and Peace, what really happened there was I was spending a lot of time in war zones, near post war zones, because I set up a family foundation which works with the poorest of the poor. And a lot of them the poorest of the poor are in conflict zones. And I was in northeast kivu in the Congo and I was walking through there and it's, I guess, one of the least peaceful places in the world. But I suddenly started to think, well, what is the opposite of all these stressed out countries I'm spending time in? What are the most peaceful nations and is there anything I can learn from them which I can bring to the programs I'm doing? Searched the internet and couldn't find a thing. And that's how the Global Peace Index was born. But what happened is the more I was looking in, do we uh, peace? And I realized just how much we didn't know about peace. And just one simple example. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the Global Peace Index, so it measures the uh, you know, uh, peacefulness of the nations around the world. and it covers about 99.7% of the world's population. But if you can't measure something, Can you truly understand it? And if you can't measure it, how do you even know whether your actions are helping you or hindering you in achieving your goals? You just don't. So, yeah, that's the measurement of peace. What I realised as we move further on, a lot of the time when we think we're studying peace, we're not actually studying peace. What we're doing is we're studying conflict. And peace and Mm -hmm. conflict aren't exactly the same concepts. They're, they're, they're yeah. somewhat two different sides of the same coin. Uh, uh, and so what I realised, there's this whole field which was the open to uh, ex- to exploring. And I think for me, the passion is actually really in uncovering the unknown. So I've always felt of myself a bit like an artist, if you like. I always want to colour in the white piece of the canvas. And so I'm always... My mind's just always looking for, uh, gee, uh, uh, being critical on anything I see and looking for avenues to be able to uh, uh, do something different. So I think there's a passion. The passion's probably, uh, uh, it's an entrepreneurial passion in many ways, just doing something Mm -hmm. original and new, which I think has some meaning for society. I guess that's the best way of doing it. But what I'll do is just come back, we'll just come back to peace and conflict. So, the thing about the Institute for oh, Peace is when you look at peace, a lot of the time when we think we're working on peace, we're working on conflict. So, we're looking at conflict and how to stop it. But it's very, very different the concept of what creates for a resilient nation, one which is highly peaceful, which doesn't have conflict. And so, the best way of looking at this is an analogy with health. So, if we think we go back, let's say, to the 50s, great breakthroughs in pathology. Uh, none of us are going to die of a heart attack young. We're now curing cancers. And so pathology, studying the second dying is really important, really important. But it wasn't till we start to look at the positive health that we actually started to understand what was needed to have a healthy and robust life. And so there are things like good exercise. Correct diet, positive mental disposition. And you're not going to learn any of those things through studying someone on the deathbed, on their deathbed. And it's the same for peace. If we want to understand the resilient aspects for peace, the ones which keep societies peaceful, we need to understand the healthy, not the sick economies.
0: Yeah, that, that is a really amazing analogy and definitely not a perspective that a lot of people think of. Um, first, the perspective that artists are. Entrepreneurs and vice versa. I think that is a cornerstone of building any great company. Um, but secondly, taking that to a peace and conflict resolution, a lot of people definitely focus on how can we solve the existing problem, not how we can go back to the roots of it and actually work towards peace and see how we can enhance the peace side of things and really focus on leveraging that as a tool to achieve world unity. Um, and so, on that note. Do you think that world peace would be possible if we do focus on that side of peace and enhancing peace? Um, And if so, what has to happen in today's day and age to achieve that world peace?
1: So we look at it and peace is a relative concept. Okay, so it's only relative when you compare it to something else. So what is peaceful? There's no country in the world which would say is absolutely peaceful. But on the other hand, you can go to some of the most violent places in the world and you can still find pockets of peace that may just be simply within a family unit or it may be in, within a small village. So peace, first up, is a relative concept. Uh, I can't imagine a world which is going to be absolutely free of violence. It's not, not something I can imagine. Not, certainly not in my lifetime, my children's lifetime or my grandchildren's life. I just can't see it. But what we can do is we can aspire to make the world more peaceful. So let's just think about that for a second, and unpack it a little bit. So what would happen if we could just shoot for making the world 10% more peaceful? That's within everyone's imagination. So that's great we get that, and let's think of another 10%. But the idea is to bite off, I believe anyway, chunks which are achievable. Now to do that, we need to then understand what the main main things in the world which cause peace to deteriorate. And there are two, we look at this and it's a lot more complicated than what I'm going to put forward here because there are many, many types of violence. But the two which are the most tragic are war and then all the consequences which go with war, which are torture, rape and a whole range of other uh, things. And then homicides. And so, if we look at just those two and tackle those two, we, then, in terms of the measurements we use, we can make the world a lot more peaceful. So, if we let's say look over the last decade, for example, the world's peacefulness has decreased by about roughly two point five percent. Okay, so that's not a lot, but on But from another angle, uh, well, what does that actually mean? But when we look at the number of countries, what we find is that 81 countries deteriorated in peace, but 80 actually improved. So we can see the peace in many ways over the last decades been very, very finely balanced. Yeah. Now, if we went back and we looked at the wars in the Middle East, for example, and those wars didn't occur. So we'll say that Syrian, Iraq, and uh, let's say Libya. So if you looked at those three, and those wars didn't occur, then the world would have actually become more peaceful over the last decade. So I think the first thing is, how do we stop wars? And because the tragedy of the wars, it's just a, like a, it, the outcome's terrible. If we look at the moment, the place in the world where the most people are likely to start in the next year is Yemen, and that's simply because we've got a war going there, and when you've got a war, you really can't get the, fam- the uh, food which is needed for the famine relief into the areas and the f- famines themselves are brought about by the war. So huge refugee flows as well. So that, 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 that's the first thing now. So part of that comes back to the international community and the international community's role in not starting wars. And I'll notice that the Biden administration at the moment is looking at a proposition which they're likely to look at how can they legislate to try and stop the US having these wars, which some people say last forever, maybe things like the Afghan war, the Iraqi war, and sort of obviously they're not boots on the ground, but the engagement in, let's say, things like the Syrian war. So I think, look, that, that's a good starting point. But the rest of the work we've done, and I've got this all set out in the book I've written, Peace in the Age of Chaos, which I recommend anyone who's interested in this stuff to read. So if we look at that, there's a concept called positive peace, which is the attitude, institutions which create and sustain peaceful societies. What I recommend is for people to focus on building a positive peace within societies, because in the end, that comes back and builds the resilience. It means that societies then, when challenged with internal shocks or external shocks, don't actually fall into conflict. They've got the resilience to be able to deal with the pressures and then to be able to bounce back. In many cases, when they bounce back, they can be stronger. If the society itself's adapted, it's got better attitudes, institutions and structures in place to deal with conflict.
0: Yeah. And I definitely wanna come back to that phrase, positive peace, to be able to give our audiences a little bit more information. About what exactly is positive peace and how we measure it? But you know, right now, conflict, wars are very easy to be measured. The death numbers, we see how much ammunition we're spending. We see war zones torn apart. It's noticeable, it's tangible. Whereas peace, sometimes a little bit harder to measure. So, Stephen, your experience traveling around the world, how were you able to come up with a metric to actually be able to wrap your head around the measurements of peace and how we're progressing as a society with using a peace metric um, and focusing on those analytics versus the analytics of conflict?
1: Well, first off, what I'd say is there's a lot of things which would be really great to measure but we haven't got the necessary uh, information to be able to measure, okay? So domestic violence globally would be one, okay? Uh, uh, what we've done is we've uh, divided the, uh, the concept of uh, peace. And what we use is the absence of violence or fear of violence as the definition of peace. So we take that and divide it up into three different domains. So the first is militarization, The second is ongoing conflict. And the third is internal safety and security. And so we treat these three different domains. And that means then you can measure the changes in these domains over time. But to produce the Global Peace Index, we bring it all together. So ongoing ongoing conflict is the intensity of the conflicts, it's the number of people who die in those conflicts, and some other measures around that militarization looks at the sophistication of the weapons, the percentage of GDP spent on the military, uh, and other things, so the number of the uh, troops uh, and such, number of heavy weapons, uh, like particularly nuclear weapons get the worst rating. Then if we look at the internal safety and security, it consists of things like the number of homicides, level of violent pro- crime, state-sponsored terror on its citizens, number of people incarcerated, number of the uh, police per 100,000 population, uh, the effect of terrorism on on the country, and they give you an idea of some of the indicators which we use there.
0: Got it, awesome. Yeah, that's a great insight as to peace in general. So now I'm kind of moving back to the space of positive peace. How did you get started in defining positive peace and Kind of bringing that measurement in, how are we measuring positive peace in your book, uh, Peace in the Age of Chaos?
1: Well, what we did is we've started with the Global Peace Index. Okay, so it ranks 163 nations around the world and 99.7% of the world's population, as already mentioned. So, what we did then is we've developed, this, we're headquartered in Sydney, Australia. That accounts for my funny accent to headquartered in Sydney, Australia, and so we've developed down here about 25,000 different data sets which we regularly use for statistical analysis. So we've taken these data sets and then we used mathematical modeling and a lot of statistical calculations to determine what are the factors which are most closely associated with peace. And so now, as so we've taken those factors, we then use further statistical techniques to be able to clump them, and they come out into sort of eight different clumps. And so those clumps, if you like, uh, we call now pillars positive peace. Now, have developed those pillars. What we do then is we turn that back around and produce another index, which we now call a positive peace index. And this is the part where it actually really gets quite profound. So it's one thing to isolate the qualities. But once you've turned it back into an index, you can now see the momentum of countries. You can see which directions they're going. Uh, uh, the underlying uh, qualities which create peace improving Are the under qualities, underlying qualities which create peace, are they deteriorating? So you've got the ability then to really be able to get a much finer analysis of countries. But also now that you've got this, you can now look at it and now you can do analysis see what are these qualities also associated with and we find the countries which are high in peace are also associated with a whole lot of other things which we think are important like higher per capita income in fact countries improving in positive peace per annum have nearly two percent higher gdp growth rates than countries which are deteriorating we also find countries which are high in peace Perform better on measures of the ecological performance, they perform better on measures of uh, well-being and happiness, and better on a me- measures of a whole range of different measures of inclusion as well. So, therefore, in many ways, you can take positive peace and say positive peace describes an optimum environment for human potential to flourish. So that's just one way, just one way of looking at it. So we're putting out the next edition of our positive peace report, and it'll probably be out in a couple of months, probably be out in about six weeks from now. But one of the profound things we could see in that was what we did is we looked at the the countries, which had the biggest Mm -hmm. differential between the levels of peace, and which were called actual peace, and the measures of positive peace. So we find if the actual peace is a lot higher than the measures of positive peace say it would, should be, then we find over time these countries fall. So if we went back 10 years ago and we took the uh, 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 the 10 countries which had the highest deficit, you like, in positive peace compared to their actual peace. Nine of those 10 countries fell. We also then went and looked the 10 countries which had the largest falls in peace globally over the last decade you could have forecast that out of the 30 countries with the highest deficit in positive peace in other words the countries which had the biggest difference between their actual peace and their positive peace so mm-hmm. it's a framework for be getting able to predict where future conflicts are going to occur it's a pretty good framework as well yeah
0: yeah it's really about <laughs> keeping this once abstract topic and being able to narrow it down to concrete evidence, facts, and numbers so we can wrap our mind around it and then have an attack. Um, if going back to the definition of what peace was, you had mentioned before, it's the fear of, it's the absence of fear. It's the absence of that destruction. And when we look at countries succeeding, we often see a leader, a government, someone in the forefront representing the country's decisions. And if we take the positive peace index um, and being able to measure that deficit, you know, it, it, it relies on the government being able to make some sort of change or some sort of actionable items to improve the lives of their citizens, of their, um, of their community members. So in your opinion, Steve, what makes that good and effective leader to be able to harness more positive peace um, to help the overall country improve?
1: It gets hard. Leaders quite often look so good coming into office and so bad <laughs> a couple of years <laughs> into it. You know, you know, there's so many of them come in and like they're going to drain the swamp, they're going to clean up corruption. And then we find that uh, four or five years after they get out of office, now they're, they're facing a corruption charges themselves. Such a common story in so many different countries. But there's a lot of models for leadership, but there are a couple of principles which I really, really to. And so one is competence. And I guess the other, I suppose, in some ways, we'll just, we'll just call it compassion for want of a better, better way to describe it. So there, are a lot of, so there are a lot of leaders, okay, who can be really good people, okay? They're, they're very heartfelt people. But on the other hand, they a, a, haven't got any skill. The subject matter they're doing, and quite often aren't necessarily great leaders. And so they can have all the good intentions in the world, but without the skill sets, then what you do is you find that they're fairly willing, competent, nothing, nothing much positive happens. On the other hand, you've got other people who've got all the skill sets in the world, okay, really competent, really mm-hmm. know the subject matter, We'll say in this case politics, but they're a, 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 how can I put it, a, a totally self-interested and pretty heartless. And those people, it can be really effective, but gee, they can be downright dangerous. So for me, what you need in a leadership quite often is you need that heart and head combined together. So you need someone with the really good skills, but you need someone also who's a, a compassionate and really interested in public service. So we use the word public service often, okay, when we're describing our leaders, but not many of them there are public service. Most of them are there for something to do with their own egos, something they want for themselves from that public office. So in many ways, we've got to get a lot better being able to combine the two. I think in most Western democracies, we generally are looking for leaders who are competent, We think leaders who are hard because we need sort of hard, strong people to lead us. And we do need strong people. We do need competent people. But the hardness, well, I question that. I think we need people who are much more compassionate. And I think from that, we will get a lot better leadership. Yeah. Um,
0: Definitely. And a lot of what I heard from that response was this core principle of empathy. Uh, mixing in that empathic sense of ourselves into our daily works, into our daily experiences. And so I definitely do think it's one to have a strong head and know kind of the educational material behind something. And it's another, especially in a place of power to be able to use that knowledge to actually empathize with the community standing around them and be able to cater best to those needs. And that's something that empathy It's something that anybody in any walks of life, regardless of job, power, position, can learn. And it's something that I personally am trying to develop as well. It's not an easy task. Always putting yourself into the shoes, the mind, and the heart of someone else. Um, And so what I think a lot of that empathy comes from is also this want and need for inner peace. And so I've often heard that you can't actually have world peace without inner peace to those principles such as empathy. Um, Steve, in your opinion, how do you achieve this inner peace? Can you share a little bit on maybe your meditation cycles and how that's impacted your life or anything else you recommend to actually achieving this inner peace and therefore connecting it to being able to be empath- empathic and sympathetic to our community members?
1: So I think the first thing as we look at it, uh, yeah, yeah, the, 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 one of the questions sure. Often here, uh, do a peaceful people create a peaceful society, or does a peaceful society create peaceful people? Okay, so first up, I don't think you can separate the two. Uh, it, it, all this stuff works systemically, which we'll come back to, I'm sure, in uh, later on in the in, in this talk. So the first thing is look: society creates the conditions under which people can pursue inner peace if we like or a more pe, or a more peaceful personality so if you think about it, if you're in the middle of a conflict zone or you're, uh, you're spending your whole day just scratching out enough food to eat to eat that night and then quite often it's not even enough food very very hard to focus on uh, your luxuries like uh, your self-development okay so the first okay. thing is we can see from that pretty stark example that the conditions set by society very much affect the way the individuals operate. But on the other hand, it's sort of where uh, people can personally develop and they become more peaceful, Then that does affect and radiate out through society in many, many different ways. And so it's just simple. If our interactions with other people are not as aggressive, less hostile, we're less likely to get angry easily, uh, uh, less likely uh, uh, to feel anxiety, uh, and more friendly, then that will ha- does have impact on the people who we inter- inter- interact around with us. And to some extent, and I'll say to just some extent, that does then affect their disposition as well. So one person makes a little bit of difference, let's say, but let's think about someone and they've got, let's say, well, so they have 50 interactions in a day. And now 30 of those interactions are much better than what they could have been. And that has an ongoing effect for those people as they move through society. So I think sort of the one of the things I get asked commonly is, gee, what can I personally do to actually uh, uh, help create peace? And it, and so a lot of people are thinking, oh, gee, I've got to go out there and change the government. Uh, I've got to go out and change uh, yeah, 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 this or change that. it will help uh, help change an authoritarian regime in some nasty part of the world. But it's not. A lot of the time, what we can do, it's just simply the way we interact with people. Yeah, when you go and get your coffee in the morning, make sure you smile. just ask the person, how are they? Okay. Little... Little 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 yeah. things wow. like that. Uh, so obviously, there's all the all the other stuff we hear, like count to ten before you uh, you, you get ang- you make an angry response to someone. But they're, like, it's just it's it's much much simpler than that. It's just really just having a pleasant response to, response to people. Uh, that doesn't mean that you uh, you have to be weak. You can still be really quite strong and be pleasant. If we come back to the meditation side of thing, which is where we, we started at. So I've, I've done a lot of meditation through my life, like a, I've been meditating 45 years. It sounds a long while, doesn't it? When you particularly when you're about 21. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like multiple lifetimes. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I've been meditating about 45 years. And if I look, look at it, the, the first thing with meditation, it's not a simple fix, okay? A lot of people think, oh, gee, I'm feeling anxious. Like I'm going to go and meditate and that will calm me down. Uh, and it does. But meditation works over a long period of time. And you've got to be regular with it. You're regular with it. So it's just this slow incremental improvement. But it... You get the techniques you like. It's just a lovely thing to do. When you're meditating, you really get into some lovely spaces, really lovely spaces. So I think for me, if I look at meditation, I think I'm a much better person because of it. I think I'm much calmer than what I would have been. I think my close personal relationships are much better than what they would have been. And, like, I've got a great life around me, so... So, for just on the personal side, I'm married, I've got four kids, 11 grandkids, and we've all functioned together as a a, a, as a really a, a intimate a family outfit. There's no sibling rivalry or any of that kind of stuff. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Relationship engaged also, we've lived in some ways parallel lives, but we're also engaged in a whole lot of other activities together as well. So I think, in a lot of ways, it just makes you that little more, little bit more detached from the uh, life. But by that, I don't mean in a negative sense. But detached, I mean you just don't get so we emotions just aren't as so much raw when you're dealing with life. And I think they're the kind of benefits which come from meditation. But yeah, Definitely. Right, Definitely. I, I love doing it. So I meditate gee, at least <laughs> an hour a day.
0: Yeah, that's that's amazing. Honestly, I tried getting into meditation. Um, but my mind was all over the place. And so maybe I need to go revisit any type of meditation. I think maybe I just wasn't doing the right form, but it's not—it's definitely not easy studying peace and conflict and then being able to calm down yourself and your senses and be able to see things in a more worldly view. Um, One of my favorite quotes actually is, today's a good day to do good for someone else. And I think that goes back to what you were saying about even that small act of kindness because you don't know what other person's situation is. You don't know the privilege that they do or don't have. And I think, especially for me living in, you know, I'm living in a college town. I have the privilege of being able to go to college. That that itself comes with this awareness of mental health. And it comes with this awareness of being able to control my emotions and YouTube videos about meditation and all of these other privileges that I'm able to make myself aware of and educate myself on. But you have to realize that not everyone has that. And so just one act of kindness um, towards someone else can definitely help their day, help their mental health without us knowing. And then in the end, hopefully those small acts accumulate to unity and peace. Obviously a long ways away, but I think similar to the meditation, it's a slow and steady progress of growth. Um, because small one day at a time being able to be kind being able to help someone else realize something that they might not have before being able to spread that cheer and joy that you might be experiencing one day onto someone else's life are the small things that will bring us all closer to each other
1: yes I think look the other thing is not to prejudge people Uh, I'll I'll, I'll give you a a story okay Uh, guy from Washington really quite famous in the peace and conflict space so when I first started out 15 years ago on this journey I had a meeting with him okay and then for some hanging around the states for quite a while and so then I've flown, flown off somewhere for a meeting come back to Washington lo and behold there we are we're both at the baggage counter getting our bags so walk we'll up and go hi how are you totally ignores me totally ignores me I go hey will say, Fred, hey Fred, Steve here, how are you? Totally ignored me, totally ignored me. Picked up his bags and walked off, and I thought, wow, what a rude, ignorant man. <laughs> and so, then for some years after that, like people would bring up his name in the admiration. I'd say, oh no, you've got it wrong. This guy's d- 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 quite, quite, quite arrogant and rude. This situation occurred with me anyway. Sort of we're both the uh, maybe eight years later in Barcelona at the, uh, not not Barcelona in Bologna, uh, giving a lecture uh, to uh, 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 teaching for half a day at a university there on uh, peace and conflict. And this is a great place to be. It's the oldest university in World Bologna, so it's just a great place to be. So we get to meet. And so we go out for dinner that night and sort of be, uh, getting on really well. We get into the night and sort of at midnight, we're still going and chatting. And do you know what happened when we're on that uh, 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 time at the airport on the the baggage belt? He's deaf in one ear. ear. He couldn't hear me.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: And it just drove home to me, just really simply. Okay, Uh, prejudging is uh, quite often it's a really bad idea.
0: Yeah, that I think that has to go with empathy and what we were talking about before, but you can never assume someone's position because you don't know their story. And I think there's a concept of perception versus reality. The perception someone gives off is never all sides to who they are, their background, where they come from, what they're thinking at a certain point of time, what happened two seconds before you saw them that's the reality that goes unseen. And so being cognizant that there's so much more to just a front facing side of a person, I think has helped me personally in my social justice endeavors, but can help the whole community in being more understanding and tolerant in general. Um, So Steve, that brings me to my next question about something that's rewarding to you or one of your philanthropic projects that has just made you realize that there's more to people than
1: what what they show off at face value. Yeah, so we, we actually haven't covered this yet. Uh and so and there's I've got a whole lot of stories in peace in the age of chaos out of a development background and how that shaped my approaches to peace. Uh, so but uh, again so I've got a family foundation sort of after I've made a whole lot of money out of business. So you, you set up a family foundation. And since then, it's done about over 200 projects now in the developing world. We might be up to 220. Uh, direct beneficiaries from that are about 3.2 million people. And so we do a whole range of different things, sort of they range from a, a rehabilitation of child soldiers, uh, to working with the uh, conflict zones with the nomadic uh, pastoralists, uh, food and food insecurity uh, programs in some of the places where you've got the, uh, you, some of the, where you get more where foods, it's difficult to grow food. I've uh, done, done a lot of famine relief. we have just finished the uh, feeding uh, people in Zimbabwe. They've got really good rains the last few months. So we're now shifting the attention to Yemen, where we'll be putting feeding programs into Yemen. Uh, uh, child and maternal health care programs, uh, water projects, a ton of water projects really really think that's important so as we're sitting here at the moment it's about 1.4 billion people on the planet who haven't got access to safe drinking water can you imagine that 1.4 billion okay so something like 15% more than that 17 18% of the world's population Mm -hmm. so there's there's some of the things but there's a whole range of stories I'll, I'll give you a couple of inspiring ones and couple of the uh, really tragic ones that so we worked in the Tanzania up on the border of the Congo and Burundi on a uh, child survival project up there so it's really poor really poor we put huge amount of money spent I think two million over about five years on projects there in the end we couldn't see any difference for the money we'd put in but there were the boys there and like the, these boys had hernias popping out of their stomachs. And we're talking kids seven years old, five, seven years old. The hernias had hang down about four, four inches, five inches out of their stomach. And like, it was horrible. It was like just the worst thing. And the reason what was happening is because the, the uh, yeah, undernutrition was so bad, the stomach muscles would give way, they'd get a hernia and the hernia would pop out of the stomachs. And so we looked at programs to where you, you, you try and uh, push the hernias back, in which you can do, and then sew the stomach muscles up with a simple operation. But it's not going to help because the poverty is so bad; they'll just rupture and uh, fall down again. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. and that's it's just a tragedy. And what what, what realised, and it, it took me years to actually get the stats on it, that in Africa the undernutrition rate for boys is 50% higher than girls. That's simply because the girls have got fast access to the food because they cook it. So in a lot of ways, the uh, girls and women are really disadvantaged in uh, in Africa in all sorts of ways. But quite often through gender, we've got to look at it from the lens on the other side as well, uh, because in some ways, the uh, you know, boys and men have uh, got it a lot worse than women. And so that was one example there. So there's another one. Okay. Yeah, it's nothing yeah, It's a, Another one in Youlao uh, in uh, Cambodia. So we went in there and got into the country before, uh, while it was still a closed country. So this is going back to the early '90s, let's say. And that was quite something. It was like going back in time. So we could go from the capital and drive down to the southern end of the uh, country. It was about about a uh, fourteen-hour drive, and it was over a lot of it, it was over just dusty, dirty roads driving along it you didn't see one building you could stay in nor did you see one building with even a glass window in it, it because sort of in the uh, yeah, yeah, revolution there they'd taken it back to an agarian culture much along the lines of what now did in china and so we got down we had an area there we we're working with and we put the uh, clean water in and so this was simple it's just putting pumps in and then pumping the water out so they got clean water we did it for about the initial project, about twenty thousand people. So that's a lot of people, and the child mortality rate dropped from eighteen percent down to twelve percent, and sort of it wiped out a whole range of waterborne diseases. So about a third of the sickness was because of waterborne diseases. And like we did that for less than twenty dollars a head. And I was, after that, I was hooked. That was one of the very first projects that I did. I was. Hooked on developmental aid. But since the child mortality rates globally have fallen, you don't get those kind of the, uh, rates anywhere other than in the worst conflict zones these days. So that was, that that was one. That was a truly inspiring story. Oh, and I've got a monkey. We, we were talking about it yeah. earlier on. I'll show, I'll hold the mug up so everyone can yeah. see. that. So, yeah. you see these two Buddhist monks, okay? So they're in mandalay. Okay, and so we, uh, we, we, we started to support them maybe 15 years ago. They provide free education to about 10,000 kids in Mandalay. But the monk who runs it's just real, real entrepreneur. He's, he's always thinking of, oh, can I get this, uh, build this printing press and then I can do some printing and I'll get some more money to help fund the education for the kids. And the education out of, the, out of it is great. It's one of the best performing uh, schools in the, in the state. But I've turned up there one day and there's all these kids, okay, about 14, 15, 13 to 15, let's say. And they're all decked out in the in the monk's robes. And there's, I don't know, a couple of hundred of them? Yeah, something like that. And I said, gee, what's happening here? And he goes, oh, okay. So up in, up in the, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. One of the, state, well, I think it was Shan State. Up in Shan State, there's a civil war going there. And I've got some friends up there. And they said, Look, we've got these kids. Uh, there's no school. They can't get any education. They run the risk of being pressed into either the army that was the Myanmar My, My army or alternately getting pressed into the Shan, uh, your, your, your rebel group, uh, uh, and as child soldiers. And so, look, uh, is there anything you do to help? And he thought, Well, okay, uh, I can give them the schooling. And then he had some premises on the school and like it's hard to describe it but you'd have the yeah 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 20 20 kids sleeping in a in in a room which would be barely enough but barely any space at all the walls were just having to put it had little holes in them Uh, i don't know what happened in the when it went in the wet season during the rain but he had the space to put them up he didn't have enough money to feed them, so he took them in as monks because the tradition in Myanmar is the monks go here each morning with their begging bowl and get given food. But now he was able to food them, feed them, so now you have these 200 kids getting educated, somewhere safe, uh, maybe a little bit wet, but somewhere safe, and getting adequate mm-hmm. food. And that was just great entrepreneurial story.
0: Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, these stories, you know, I don't think these populations get enough coverage as they deserve. and so. There's so many different populations in hidden pockets of the world that need our community's help, but simply don't have enough of the manpower to support for it. I think one one example is um, every year, my family likes to donate some of our either birthday money or any excess money that we can possibly give to a foundation in India. And what the foundation does is provide food packages in this big refrigerator to Indian slums. And so I was shocked this year when I found out how many children we were able to provide with what I would consider considerably less amount of money in today's um, economic standing. And so I was able to feed almost 100 individuals with $70. So less than a dollar per meal was given to feeding an individual and helping them throughout the day. And I think if more people had that um, had that knowledge, if more people were able to gain access to organizations and entrepreneurs who are already doing the hard work for providing for these communities, then we're able to expand, exponentiate that growth. And I think that leads us to our very natural next question, but how can youth join the positive peace unity in their schools, in their community, or how can they, across the world
1: yeah well look what you're saying about the food's right uh you generally if you're looking at people in starvation uh, conditions about 25 cents a day to give them enough food which is nutritional to keep them alive and like it's 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 not a lot of money it's not a lot of money and sort of so the project you're doing in the i just thinks fabulous and look that's the kind of thing people can do you've got to find the right vehicle uh, to be able to donate money with a lot of the time the smaller ones are better than the really big ones the big ones quite often have big overheads whereas the smaller ones uh, but they're a lot harder to find and get in contact with a really lot more lean mm-hmm. a lot more efficient But on the other hand some of the smaller ones they can just be a shop front for a to collect the money and uh, people to have other people to have a good lifestyle and so you've got to be what you pick and what could be wise Uh, uh, but look we come back to it and we sort of look at positive peace we train a whole lot of people on it so to date we've trained about the uh, 3,000 IEP uh, peace ambassadors Uh, we just finished training a cohort or in the process of training another 600 in a, a Ethiopia, currently, so they'll be working on peace projects inside EPOP, because as we all know, that's a country with the issues at the moment, particularly from the Tigray region. So we run these IEP ambassador uh, courses, and what they do is they teach people how uh, uh, to take a positive peace, and then how to go about doing a project which they could implement within their community. So the next said IEP ambassadors training is coming up. And so we're partnering with the uh, Humanity Rising to be able to uh, include uh, people from this group here, anyone listening to it, listening to this talk in that program. It kicks off in about another three weeks, I think. So through contacting Humanity Rising, they can pass the details along to us and we'll send out invites for this next course. So what happens is it's a series of training. The first part's an online uh, yeah, yeah, training, which takes about four hours. But people can do that without doing the ambassador's course. And that's called the Positive Peace Academy. And anyone wants to search it online, they can find it. And it's a free four-hour training on, on peace and positive peace. But the academy does that, that's the first part of it, and then follows up with a number of three, three hour sessions online at the back end of it, you get a thorough understanding of positive peace. You also understand how you can go about implementing positive peace programs yourself within your local community. So Debbie and myself, we're chatting about this over the last few weeks. So one of the things which it's possible to do is for anyone listening to that, they've done the IEP ambassador training course they'll have the knowledge to be able to look at doing a positive peace program within your school. And so there's a whole series of things which go, go with it. So built within the way we do these things, it looks at, let's say, we'll use the setting as a school. We look at it from a systemic perspective. What can you do within the school to make the school more peaceful? And so you take the eight illicit positive peace, you look through each of the different lenses.
0: Perfect. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that wraps up a lot of the conversation about peace and conflict. However, there's one more lingering thing if we're connecting it back to Humanity Rising. And so Humanity Rising's whole mission is to be able to give students the the voice, the leverage, the experience to go out to the community and make that change themselves. And so Steve, what is one piece of advice or a message and to all of our students, either in the Humanity Rising movement or planning to join the Humanity Rising movement,
1: well, I think the first thing is uh, going out and doing a, 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 a positive peace academy. Uh, That'll be the first thing I'd recommend. And then, if you really want to get serious about doing projects around it and doing the IAP ambassador uh, program, so that'd be that. That'd be the first thing on it. Uh, the other thing without doing that is it's back to those day-to-day uh, things which one can do. You can also join organisers or groups which you're passionate about. Uh, and that's another way of getting involved because there's already a vehicle there. You can join that vehicle and then sort of do your own thing with it. I think quite often, uh, particularly for students, it's good to focus on the local community, particularly in the States because... There's so much poverty and hardship within the states. I think sort of working within local communities with the disadvantage, particularly in the states, the homeless, because you've got such a large homeless population compared to other uh, developed countries, let's say. So focusing in, in those kind of areas, local community and the people who are most disadvantaged, I think is an excellent, excellent place to start.
0: Awesome. And for all of our students out there who, you know, might have the question, what, what cause am I passionate about? Where do I start with that? Definitely the positive peace curriculum, going through that, figuring out what parts of the community that really speak to you, you really want to help. And then you can bring that back to Humanity Rising, speak on our one of our podcasts, um, join our anti-bullying movement, join our peace and unity movement, and all together, have the tools and capabilities to go out then and make the change yourself. I like to tell all the students that I talk to that you are not too young. You are not too small to make any change in your community. And like even I mentioned before, it really just takes the small acts of kindness accumulated to make a really big difference. And so with that, Steve, I'm really happy to conclude our, our podcast today.
1: Okay, great. Yeah. The only, only other thing I'd comment is, uh, yeah. Peace in the Age of Chaos, a book I've just written. If any of you are interested in it, get it, have a read. It's got a lot of personal stories of my journey to peace, but it goes through also sort of the positive piece and why it's a transformational concept, which is a new way of being able to go about reinvigorating Western societies. So, look, it's been lovely chatting, and uh, hopefully we'll do it again.
0: Yes. Yeah, Thank you so much, Steven. I am actually making my way through that book right now. So if any of the other students wanna grab it and pick it up, I'm happy to discuss it, talk about it and share our thoughts and experiences as well. But thank you so much, Steve.
1: Okay, thanks.
0: You can contact Steve at info at economicsandpeace.org. Unfortunately, that's all we have for today, but definitely be sure to look out for more episodes on our professional perspectives on what cause inspires you. I'm your host, Alicia Gupta, and I hope you all continue changing the world.